You are listening to the Sharp End Podcast, a podcast based on accidents in North American climbing. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Designed and developed in the Swiss Alps, Mammut has been making the finest alpine equipment since the 1860s. Driven by a continuous quest for innovation, Mammut's technical clothing, footwear, climbing gear, avalanche safety, and alpine equipment are distinguished by the highest quality, functionality, and safety. They embody Swiss technology and perfection. Mammut, absolute alpine. Thank you to the Colorado Hour Bound School and Sunto for the additional support. If you appreciate this podcast and you learn from this podcast, consider donating. It takes a lot for me and the American Alpine Club to produce this podcast every month, and a little bit goes a long way. If you'd like to donate, go to AmericanAlpineClub.org slash donations, click the drop-down menu, and toggle down to the sharp end, and voila, easy as that. Now, before we get to the story, I want to preface with telling you that as of February 23rd, when I'm recording this, there have been 15 avalanche fatalities in the U.S. 15. Three of those happened on the same day, and all three were separate incidents in different states. In some of these 15 cases, they weren't wearing beacons, and in other cases, folks were doing most things right. Luckily, in this episode, Mike, who was caught and buried in an avalanche, is alive and well and tells us his story. Hi, I'm Mike Zawaski. I live in Louisville, Colorado. I'm a PhD student in geology at University of Colorado at Boulder, looking at challenging times in geologic history for mostly little microbial life. I've also worked for the last 22 years for the Colorado Outward Bound School in their mountaineering program. And this is my 18th year as an instructor for Knowles Wilderness Medicine. And I like to go back under skiing. Great. So I've read about this incident that you're going to tell us about today, um, but I'm excited to hear it from you. So what day was this? This was on 18 December, 2018. And what was the weather like on this day? It was overcast and a little bit snowy and blowy. Temperatures were below freezing, but not too cold. I think down in the high teens or low 20s. So where did you guys go ski touring? What happened? Start from the very beginning of the day. A friend of mine and I parked at the trailhead and headed up to the little fork in the road and decided to go right up towards an area called Jones Pass, which is near Berthoud Pass, Colorado. And we thought we'd ski somewhere we hadn't been for a while, and it was a weekday, so probably weren't going to be a lot of people up there. And so we started heading up, and just we hadn't been there at least that direction this year yet. And so we just started heading up the valley, and we're going to see what things were doing, and skied up the valley for a couple hours to above treeline, above 12,000 feet. We're kind of just looking around in my mind. It was December and I'd only skied half a dozen days. And so the snowpack was, while doing good, was you know on its traditionally kind of thin side and faceted snow was already in full effect here in Colorado. And so I imagined us just kind of skiing some low angle-ish slope down off the ridge off some peak and so we headed up the valley a little further and my friend said hey what about that line as we looked over at this peak and there was a long 600 or so foot long kind of couloir going off of that and it was pretty full of snow and there were tons of snowmobile tracks that had gone up it there were some ski tracks going down it and people had definitely been high pointing there were 
gosh, over, over 10 tracks or so easily going across that slope and up into the gully that we intended to ski down. And But I didn't really think much of it. He said, hey, look at that line. I said, I mean, yeah, that's a proud line or something. And I didn't think too much of it in my mind. I probably didn't think I would ski it, so I didn't really look at it too closely. And I think one thing I reflect on is that because I hadn't thought about skiing it, I really didn't take a close look at it and really have a good mental inventory of what this route was like, that should I be on top for it? But, you know, that's one of those things I've learned from hindsight. And so we kind of continued up. We didn't talk much about it. We just were aiming towards how we'd go, go up this thing and then got up onto the, onto the ridge and then decided to work our way up towards the summit a few hundred feet higher. And we picked our way through some kind of snow and boulder areas, kind of stepping over a little bit of rocks and things, and then skinning up some bulletproof wind slab. And then... Sounds fun. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but it was it was fine. It was whatever you need to do just to get ourselves up. And so I imagined, in my mind, I probably just imagined kind of survival skiing our way down that to get on top of something and picking feet here and there and finding a few good turns and then just stepping through the other stuff as a mellow way to ski down. And we worked our way up towards the top, skied up some kind of nice mellow slope and then got to the top and it was a little windy and it was kind of on and off a little, not entirely white out, but it was snow was blowing and the clouds had socked in a little bit, but then you could see relatively well. And so we stopped and had a little food and chit chatted, that kind of thing. And then kind of decided to get up and had taken our skins off. And then the idea of what to ski kind of came about. And so the reflecting I've done from this time is that somehow in my mind, this beat went from a whether or not I should ski it, but to how do I ski it? And I think that's the major error in judgment that led us to to where I am today in my accident, I guess. That's the, the simplest way to summarize it for myself is that, yeah, we talked about things on the top. We discussed what we had seen that, oh, there were plenty of snowmobile tracks that had even gone up in the gully. And But I've learned enough times that not to let that fool you into perceiving it safe, but we were just kind of talking about all the things. The wind was kind of coming the peak. And so we were on the lee side and I remember picking up some snow and throwing it just to see what direction the wind had been going and knocking the snow around a little bit around the peak to see what had been accumulating a bit. And, and I think that the trick was then that it was relatively low angle on the top. And so I didn't, without having a good idea what this gully had looked like, since I really hadn't been thinking about it, I'm not really sure at this point, but I know that in my mind, the the error I made was going from deciding whether I should ski it, to turning it into a problem to solve of how do we ski it and that getting in the way of deciding really whether we should be skiing this thing at all. When you step back, that's a fascinating idea, right? It never occurred to you that that was never in the plan, ever in the cards on the ski tour. And then it just happened to kind of fall into your lap. I mean, that's happened to me so many times where I, I go ski touring in the mountains and I don't actually have an objective until things look good. And then now what? Yeah, we made that mistake in that I hadn't really looked at the route very carefully and I was on top where then things were lower angles, so it looked a little bit better. And just somehow in my mind, going from a whether or not to a how kind of problem was was one lapse. And then I also think about the idea of, is saying no something that's difficult for us to do? I think that's one thing I, I look at if someone says, hey, do you want to go climb that pitch or do you think you can do that run out pitch or something? And just are we more likely to say yes and challenge ourselves to do things versus saying, oh, I should back off that or, oh, that's too run out for me or this slope looks suspect and so maybe I shouldn't shouldn't try to go down that. I don't know. Those are just some of the things I've been reflecting on over the six or seven weeks I've had since this incident and spending a lot of time in the lazy boy. I've had time to reflect on that. And I feel like that's the, the biggest component for myself is not being assertive enough in the beginning 
when that line was even proposed, you'd just say, yeah, that's a great line, but uh, this is December, it's Colorado, you know, that should totally be off limits. And and so in the end, that's the, the problem that I, that I made is that friends had, for example, asked me, oh, well, had you considered what aspects and this and that? And, and I hadn't, and I didn't necessarily feel like I needed to because it's this time of year, and my general rule is that I don't ski steep slopes like that this time of year in Colorado, and so it didn't necessarily need any more thought, or I didn't need to have decided whether I'd ski this aspect or that aspect. I, my plan is generally always to stay on these relatively lower angle slopes this time of year. And so, sure, sometimes the conditions are right, and you know, steep slopes can be had, but this time of year with the amount of skiing I had done and where the snowpack was and the amount of time I'd been in the backcountry, I thought, well, I would just ski something lower angle. And so that's that's in the end, the mistake I made is breaking my rule of skiing slopes like that this early in the season and then having not entirely seen the slope, now that I think through it even more, I didn't realize how steep it would have been at the bottom because at the top it was relatively lower angle. And so we started skiing on a less than 30 degree slope. If you look at the Cal Topo, you can see it gets dramatically steeper a little ways down from the summit. And so at that point, we were relatively committed to to skiing that. So the aspect of the slope that you did decide to ski, that Kular, was less than 30 degrees at the top and then it got steeper towards the bottom or? It was less than 30 degrees for sure because I had looked at that angle and then, but then we could, you couldn't see the entire gully from the top. Okay. And then my second question was, mm-hmm. what was the avalanche forecast that day? Moderate. Moderate. Okay. So we had looked at that and made that connection in my mind and you, know, you can interpret moderate how you want to. A friend of mine from, you know, talked about from his keeper told days, he would always give me this idea of, well, moderate or considerable. He'd say, well, would you go to the bar if there was a considerable chance of you getting beat up that night or getting in a fight? And so I, you know, that was his kind of fun way of kind of talking about that. And so if there's a moderate chance of you getting in a car crash, would you maybe not go in your car? And so it's just interesting how we think of moderate on a on a one to five scale, but you know, there, there's the interpretation of the word versus there's just the objective thing. There's green, yellow, and different colors as you move up that scale. And so it's a how you want to think of that as I think could potentially get one in trouble. I think one thing though for myself is in this time of year, having skied in the Colorado snowpack for decades and knowing that avalanche professionals get killed in avalanches and having you know, heard stories of avalanches and red accidents in North American mountaineering regularly that accidents happen. Having just all that history, part of me doesn't focus so much on the numbering system because generally I'm choosing slopes that are on the lower angle side of things, especially in this kind of early season anyways. And so generally if I'm lower than 30 degree slopes, obviously I want to consider what's happening because maybe there's some hang fire above me, some steep slopes that could avalanche onto me, but I try to stay on lower angle slopes where it's not as much an issue what the the hazard is because I'm on terrain where I'm not going to get in an avalanche and that keeps me safe. That's really my MO as far as being in the backcountry. But then if it's more green, then yeah, I'm more likely to ski off on something steeper if there's some good powder on some line that looks enticing and conditions look good for that day. Okay. So you're, so you decided to ski this line. This is, this is what you're going to ski at the top. You're looking down. It's less than 30 degrees at the top of that cooler. And then what happens? So I went first and we had talked about, well, we can't see the whole thing, so we should probably ski it in a couple of pitches. How, had long, I just how skied, long was it? Uh, it was five or 600 feet tall. Ooh. Just by looking at the topo map from where I ended up and the height of the peak at 12,666. And I was at about 12,000 feet where I was, so it was six or so, you know, 100 feet of, of skiing down. And so 
we had talked about, do we do it in a few pitches? Should I go off to the right where you could definitely ski off into some, you know, towards some kind of exposed kind of scree slope type thing. And so one thought for that was that, well, we'd be definitely out of avalanche hazard, but then I'd be skiing into some shallower snow. So I might potentially actually set off an avalanche. And so my cone of penetration might actually penetrate into that. And that might not be the best place to go. And then if it did avalanche, then we, or we decided we didn't like it, we'd be stuck on this kind of scree, talisy, bouldery ridge. And then we'd have to kind of walk back up, which wouldn't be the end of the world, but you know, it wouldn't be an ideal thing if you're out skiing. There was a big outcrop I perceived that stuck out partway down. And so it was a good place where I could see how far each of us had gone. And so I decided to ski down towards that. So I made 10 or 12 turns. I'm not exactly sure how many. And so I initially started skiing down. I kind of jumped up and down quite a bit and made some long kind of zigzags just to kind of test the slope a little bit and see how things were looking before committing to some actual kind of turns. And then I started skiing down and things seemed smooth. And so I skied behind this outcrop and it seemed big enough. And so I yelled clear. And even at the time I had briefly looked down the slope and had maybe thought, oh, is this really the right thing to ski? And so had I really been able to think more in the moment, I probably could have just kept skiing and traversed out of this thing because we weren't really in the in the couloir yet. And so I probably could have just skied out of this, but I didn't really have that kind of quick thinking at the moment. And so I stood behind the, the outcrop, kind of positioned myself. I moved up a little bit so there wasn't, so I was kind of more towards the rock versus on the snow. And so then all of a sudden I kind of heard some noise and I looked behind me and I saw the slope starting to move and I saw this cracking of the snow, snow and there was definitely some worry on my part. There was probably some part that thought, well, this is kind of cool looking, but there was definitely some worry and so I remember shuffling my feet up to the side, trying to get closer to the rock. And had it just gone on that side, I probably would have been fine. I think my skis were totally out of the way. I could move closer up to the rock. I'm not sure if I actually stepped on rock or not. I can't remember. But then when I looked uphill to the kind of climber's right side of the rocks, I then saw that the fracture must have propagated further. And so there was a the avalanche was going on the other side of the rock outcrop that I was standing underneath. And so then at some point, I remember seeing it kind of spilling up the side. So not just going around the outcrop, but actually kind of spilling over. And if you look at the photos, you can see that the crown goes all the way across. So maybe at some point it actually spilled over that rock. And so, you know, that's, I guess, essentially feedback to say that rock outcrop wasn't as much of a safe spot as I would have wanted it to be. And so then I don't know what happened after that. I remember looking up and seeing that happen, but probably the snow spilling over caught my ski tips and just pulled me down. And I remember... Pretty quickly, I was just laying on my side and going at high speeds. So the snow, you, you watched it fracture, and then it spilled over. You're thinking, oh, that's cool. Maybe it'll just stay on that side. And then it kind of came on, fractured to the other side of the of the rock, which you thought was your safe zone. And then eventually spilled maybe potentially over that rock, which was your safe zone. And then all of a sudden, you are laying on your side, being pulled down this cooler. Yeah, and I should make clear, there, there definitely wasn't some, oh, this is totally exciting, and the mountain is sliding. That may be more in retrospective thinking. Seeing the mountain move was kind of interesting, but at the time, there was just kind of a holy shit going on in my brain, and me shuffling up thinking, I got to get out of the way of this. This is not good. And then probably looking uphill and seeing that the snow was spilling over the rock was the point at which something had gone past the rock and then caught my skis, and then I started sliding, and there was this kind of holy shit moment in my brain where... I kind of initially felt like I was freaking out. I thought, 
I was just going at high speeds and there was some worry of, is this it? What am I supposed to do? Should I close my eyes or something? And at that point then, all of a sudden, my brain just started to kind of change gears. And all of a sudden, I started saying, at least inside my head, I was saying, stay on top, make an airway. And all of a sudden, all these things I remembered from the half dozen or so avalanche classes I'd taken just started popping into my brain. And so um, that's what my mind was saying on that way down. And so I was sliding down at pretty high speeds. I don't know when my skis got knocked off. I'm sure I dropped my ski poles pretty early on. And so those were gone. And at some point in the sliding down process, I felt this thump on the side. I thought, oh, that's going to hurt or something. I don't know if amusing in my mind happened, but there was some sort of thump that didn't really generate any pain at the moment, but I just felt some thump on my side. And while I was going down, there weren't blocks passing me. I wasn't being kind of engulfed in this thick mashed potatoes. It wasn't a big powdery avalanche I could see as I was going down really well. And so there wasn't really any need for the things I was talking about inside my brain at the time. And so I was was sliding down at high speeds and doing a little of the math. Um, it looks like I potentially slid for maybe up to nine seconds total. And so I was definitely going many tens of miles per hour. Well, if you were sliding for nine seconds down that slope, I mean, they say that avalanches can run 60, 80 miles an hour. How, how far do you think that you went? My friend and I did a little math one day and we, did, after looking at the map, decided that maybe I'd lost 500 feet of elevation for some simple trigonometry. Some people would say that's possible. At a 45-degree angle, that means I slid 700 feet total, kind of down the hypotenuse of the, of the C of that triangle. And so the trick is how fast did I accelerate, right? I didn't accelerate at G, 9.8 meters per second, or approximately 22 miles per hour per second. But if I was slid at half of G, then I was going you know, 60, 70, 80, maybe that miles per hour Depending upon how much friction was going on in that scenario, it's hard to say, and how quickly I then slowed down at the end. But I was going you know, over the speed limit, let's just say that, <laughs> kind of speed. And I would have got a ticket in that situation for sure. <laughs> well, I guess it depends whether I was in the school zone or not. But so then, so the sliding happened, and, and I remember just going down at high speeds, and I just was kind of riding it out, riding it out. There was no thought of, Oh, getting to the side or other things, I felt like I was just going so fast and you know, just being stable was maybe just enough for me. I don't think I really had the, the time to put together some sort of plan. So then as I was sliding down, as I got towards the bottom, I noticed that the snow in front of me was starting to build up. As the snow was sliding down, it was slowly building this pile going backwards. I noticed that happening and there must have been some quick, oh, this is about to stop. And then there was just a, it was might have been even less than a second, but the I was, had essentially kind of slid to a stop. There wasn't anything going on around me. And so I must have let my guard down because I probably had my hands to my side to keep myself balanced because that's how I was sliding down the hill. And so I probably needed that. And then I, I did need to protect my airway because I was just kind of sitting still. There was a quick stopping. So my airway wasn't necessary. I didn't need to stick my hand up. I didn't need to uh, push any blocks away. And so this next wave of snow just kind of, I heard this large rumble or this loud rumble and it just just built around me. And in, in probably in a second or so, it just buried me. And so I was facing down in whatever kind of sitting position maybe. And then the snow just piled up around me and almost instantly just eddied around me. And, and then it just ended. And then I just remember as soon as it stopped, I, my heart rate was cranking or at least my breathing rate was super high. I just remember saying to myself, get your shit together, slow yourself down. That, that's all I was doing at the time was just kept saying to myself, get your shit together, slow down, slow down and trying to breathe up. And I yelled help once and then I was back to breathing. And then I probably yelled help again. 
I probably wasn't the greatest of yells because my respiration rate was so high. But then not too long after, because my partner said he, after being at the top, he didn't actually see me get pulled down either. How far did the slide start below him? Uh, a good number of tens of feet. Okay. So it didn't. And he said he skied two turns before the avalanche started. That's what he told me. And so he made the exact same two turns I did. And then all of a sudden he said he didn't hear anything, but he all of a sudden saw the, the fracture started. He gave a yell and didn't hear me and then started kind of skiing over to where he could, I think to where he could then see, you know, moving down the slope over this kind of lower angle ridge where he could probably see where I was standing and didn't see me and yelled again and then figured I must have gotten carried down because I couldn't be anywhere else. And so he kind of took the long zig and zag back down towards where where I was and he skied over and gave a yell kind of doing his hasty search and and I heard him and then I yelled again and then I remember still working on my breathing and I thought oh yeah I better be yelling he's he can hear me <laughs> and so I kind of got back on track there and gave another yell and he skied his way over I'm not sure if he skied across the debris or took his material off took his gear off to walk over or not and then I was just kind of frozen frozen in the snow as I heard him coming over I remember when the avalanche was just stopping, there was this instinct for me to just kind of wiggle. Not that I was going to get my arms free, but I just remember shaking my torso and trying to maybe shake my arms and shaking my head back and forth just to try to make whatever space I could. But I was just totally frozen. There was no moving whatsoever. The avalanche, just as they, they say, and despite what you see on Hollywood movies, it had just turned to concrete and I was just frozen exactly in the position I was. And and he came over and we made some verbal contact and probably shared some swear words together. And he got his shovel out and just started digging. And because I was, I was breathing, you know, there was probably a slightly, slightly lower sense of urgency at that moment. But he started digging away and we started talking once I kind of had my head exposed and he got all those chunks off of me. And then he just started working his way down. And initially, I didn't, wasn't actually sure if I'd hurt myself. I think I remember saying to him, I, I don't know if I'm hurt. I had no idea whether my skis were on or any of that kind of stuff, but I don't think I was thinking about that. But he just started working his way down, and I got one arm free, and then my gloves were still on, all my clothing, my helmet, my pack, all that stuff was on. And then I got my other arm free, and he started working his way down. And at some point, I think we got to my left leg, which was probably the next one to, to be exposed. And, you know, and the pain was probably starting to build up a little bit there. And I thought, oh, you know, my... My leg hurts, and I don't remember exactly what I said, and we noticed that there was some blood on the snow, and so somehow on the way down, I must have hit my elbow pretty good because I put a, lay, a hole in the, a synthetic puffy and threw a, a, one layer of fleece, and so I, I put two holes in clothing, and I was bleeding a little bit on the snow, but it didn't seem like very much, and so I wasn't really concerned about it, so we figured out where the blood was coming from, and then we got to my leg and trying to move my leg just to see what was going on, and so the weird thing happened was that when I moved my leg, I could see my pelvis moving, but my leg wasn't moving. And so in my mind, I had this vision of my lower leg was just swinging free in space. Was what I actually saw and perceived for a second was what my leg was doing. So there was definitely a disconnect between what my mind was being told by my leg, you know, the, the top of my femur, because I had broken it a, a fist or so down from the head of my femur, was moving because I those muscles moved it. But my brain was being told that the rest of my leg was moving. And so it was a, a weird moment where I think we almost shared a kind of, well, this is kind of surreal, Twilight Zone-like, but that's really that's not what's happening because I could feel my leg and I could see my boot and I could see my foot was in it. And so then you know I knew I was definitely screwed at that point. And so 
we undug my other leg, and so I had good circulation sensation and motion. I could wiggle my toes and all that stuff. And so we did a relatively quick assessment. I'm sure our, both of us, the adrenaline was flowing pretty strong. And so we were probably a little rushed on things, but we went through and figured out my elbow was hurt, but that wasn't such a big deal, at least at the time. And my leg was definitely broken. We couldn't see my skis anywhere. I thought just out of my peripheral vision that I'd saw one of my, the green tip of my ski come to a stop to the right, but it must have gotten buried in the avalanche because my partner didn't see it and the CIC folks who came up, they didn't talk about seeing my extra ski. And so at the moment, we didn't have any skis. And since where we were relatively close to the trailhead, I guess it seemed like calling 911 was the smart thing to do. And so we did a head to toe on me exam and talked about what was going on and tried to figure out all the things that were happening here and talk through the scenario and make a little plan. And so we had a a GPS coordinate from our phone of where we were located. We weren't too far, you know, maybe a two-hour ski up from the trailhead. And so I got my down jacket on my pack and put my big shell on and zipped everything up and got some food and water on my pack. And we made the, the plan that my friend would ski out towards the trailhead. I would hang out in the hole. It didn't seem like there was a, still an additional avalanche hazard thinking of that scene safety issue. And so I just kind of sat in the hole and I realized I was probably going to get cold sitting on things, so we tried to have me sit up and slide my pack under my butt, but somehow that was really just painful on my leg, and the pain was definitely pretty high at this moment. So then what we did was we just took my skins out of my pack and slid them under my butt, and I sat on those, and I could feel the conduction between my pants and, and the snow slope where the one place I was kind of touching the snow, and I thought that might be a little bit of an issue, but maybe not too much, and so... I looked at my watch and it was 11.37 at that point. My friend headed off and we kind of had a plan. And so I just put my head on my knee and he left me his kind of small puffy, down puffy jacket and I kind of draped it over my head and I went into this ritual of just breathing heavy and generating heat through that way. I feel like I'd sat out enough lightning storms in the Colorado high country with inadequate clothing to <laughs> keep myself warm from waiting out some thunderstorm. And it's worked for me lots of times in the past. And so I just went into that mode of breathing and did that for a while. I had a little snack. I had some little burrito thing and some water. At some point, tried to take my pulse and it was a little tricky. And my unfortunately, one of my gloves got kind of pretty full, full of snow. So I remember kind of keeping my hand inside it and actually just stuffing my fist kind of Napoleon style in my jacket to kind of keep my hand warm and I didn't want my glove to freeze. And then I just sat there and kind of waited it out for a while. And then at some point, I feel like I got a little bored or a little restless, or maybe I was just, I had some occasional violent shivering, not too violent, but enough that it would shake my pelvis, and that got kind of painful. And so I decided I needed to move around a little bit more and generate some heat. And so I grabbed the shovel, and I would stab it into the hole I was sitting in and try to knock off these little chunks of snow. And then I'd pick them up and moving as little of my body as possible so it wasn't too painful, I'd try to throw these little chunks out of the hole I was in, because I was then thinking through the snare of, well, if if search and rescue comes, then they're going to need to get me out and they're not going to want to drag me up out of this hole. So we need to flatten the area around me. And so I started digging out these chunks. I'd stab the hole, stab the wall and um, throw these little chunks out. In the end, I didn't really do anything, right? Someone with a shovel would have accomplished the amount of work I did in a half hour or whatever amount of time. And they would have done that in seconds. But I kept myself busy and at least nothing else passed some time. And kept yourself a little bit warm too, probably. Even though I was shivering a little bit, I felt like my, I knew my core was warm. Toes were still warm and I could still wiggle them. So I wasn't really too worried. I was kind of out of the wind in my hole, so it wasn't too bad. And I could see the sky was 
actually starting to clear up a little bit, so that was good. And then all of a sudden, my friend showed up. He'd skied down. He said in about four minutes or something, got down to about where there's an old road that goes up from this area, and he ran into two snowmobilers on one snowmobile. And so he got the guy in the snowmobile to drive down, so we gave him a quick little bit of information and our latitude and longitude from his phone. And so the snowmobiler kind of raced down to his truck and got in his truck at the trailhead and drove out to get cell phone reception and called 911 for us, which was spectacular. And so my friend and the other guy who was on the snowmobile were kind of standing down there waiting for search and rescue so we could show them where to go. And my friend got a little bored. And so he decided, you know, I'm just going to skin back up. The valley is relatively straightforward. And the guy knew where he was going to be. And so he skinned up towards me. And I remember he kind of all of a sudden showed up and said, oh, I found these snowmobilers. And he just, he told me the story I just told you. Because we, there was a little rise after the avalanche where the little probably lake or, or something was that you actually couldn't see our location from down the valley. So my friend kind of went over to the edge of this little moraine type area where he could wait things out. And so then I was back alone and I found myself actually doing better again. I was by myself and I could go back towards breathing and trying to stay warm and those kinds of things. And I wasn't looking at my watch and I wasn't paying attention to the patience I had at the moment. I just was focused on the task at hand. And then all of a sudden, a few people showed up. My friend and some guy from Alpine Search and Rescue showed up with his, his snowshoes. And so that kind of gave me some sense of how they got there. And he came over and I remember maybe asking, you know, saying hi. And I think I just remember saying, what's your name and your level of certification? I feel like <laughs> what I no, asked like him. It's like an interview. <laughs> Yeah, it was a little bit that way, and he wasn't an EMT. So in my mind, I felt like I was alert enough to say I was then giving him information about what was going on with me. And so I was really kind of cognizant of what was going on around me or trying to be of here's the condition I was in. And so then search and rescue came over, and they tried to do some moving of me. And I remember hearing something a splint, and I think pretty sure I talked them out of that because the fracture was pretty high, and so we'd been trained to – well, now wilderness medicine would say you don't make a traction splint, but at the time it wasn't a place where I felt like it was too high to actually make a traction splint. And so I remember saying you really got to stabilize my leg well to, to do some moving. And so then, you know, things kind of wound down from there. So more people from search and rescue came over and eventually Flight for Life landed and they kind of really quickly gave me some pain meds. And I don't know how many split seconds they waited, but all of a sudden they dragged me up onto this vacuum mattress and onto the ski patrol sled and I remember painfully kind of going over the avalanche debris and then they loaded me onto the helicopter and, and off I went and landed there and they took me into the ER and amazingly they were pretty gentle at taking off my clothing. I really imagined that the thousands of dollars or whatever and all my you know best ski clothing was going to be cut off with trauma shears and luckily they gently took off my, all my upper layers and unzipped my ski pants so I didn't lose those. I did lose a pair of long underwear but they were getting a little worn anyway. So I suppose it might've been a blessing <laughs> that I lost that pair anyways. But, but I remember insisting that I needed some warmth on my toes because I was worried about having some frostbite. So of all the problems I had in the hospital, to me, the biggest issue was, you know, getting my feet warm for them. They were worried about all the other problems I had going on. So it was probably lower on their list of problems, but I probably complained about it enough times that they finally put something warm on my toes and, and I stopped harassing them. Well, what were the problems that they were finding? Obviously, at the moment, they figured out that my femur was broken in multiple places. And so, unfortunately, there wasn't an opening for me to get surgery that day. So they kind of slightly put me under and they drilled a hole in my femur and put a traction splint on my leg that I wore head till the next day. And so they sent me through a number of CAT scans and x-rays because I had taken a long slide and 
while I was wearing a helmet and didn't think I'd injured too much. I had a, a big hole in my elbow and I could see I had this bruise right on the pinky side, right at the base of my hand. There's that little bone there that was a little red and painful. And that's all the really injuries I had at the moment. And so they were definitely concerned with things. But I was, I feel like in relatively good spirits at the time, even though I had definitely destroyed my femur pretty well and they were pretty sure of that. But I, my legs were moving, and so I didn't have a cell phone. So when the, when the ER text was nice enough to let me call my wife on the phone, and so I remember being as cheerful as possible and saying, "Hey, says it's Mike. I, oh yeah, I had a great day skiing. The weather was good. And then, oh yeah, by the way, I got an avalanche and got buried and broke my femur. I'm at St. Anthony's Hospital. You might want to head down this way." And so that may generate a pretty good chuckle to the ER staff and myself at the time. And. I left her another one because she hadn't picked up, and so somehow her phone didn't get it. And so in the end, she didn't actually get a, hear the message from me till much later because her cell phone didn't register it, but my friend had called her, and so she Ubered her way down since I had her only car at the trailhead that day. And, and then I was in the hospital that night. Luckily, one of my great friends from Outward Bound happened to be in the area, so he came by. Sadly, rubbed was fast because my friend was posting the scenario on Facebook. And so I guess much to my demise, but my friend realized that this happened. And so he called and, and came to the hospital. So Stacy and, and he, he could hang out together. And so I got surgery the next day. They put a big titanium rod, the full length of my femur in. They put a few big bolts and some bailing wire to wrap all the pieces. No one ever gave me an exact number of how many pieces there were to my femur, but it was more than I have fingers on my hand is what the answer I kind of got from the from the whole scenario there. And so, so I got surgery on the 19th. On the 20th, they actually had me up. I felt like I ate a good meal that day and I was feeling relatively good. And I thought, I am so out of here. I'm gonna figure out this physical therapy stuff and I'll be crushing relatively soon and uh, I'm gonna be out of here. And so I even remember that first day standing up on the 20th, putting a little bit of weight. It probably wasn't even a percent. You're probably in per mil kind of scientific notation for that. So. But I was regarded as standing up and trying to put a little weight on it. But I didn't feel that great. I felt just kind of yucky, ever so maybe slightly nauseous. But I went and sat down and I had a challenging night sleeping because I was in pain and I wasn't taking too many pain meds. <laughs> After a day or so, I, I had a little bit of oxygen. I was on a nasal cannula at about one liter per minute. And, and then when I, they took it off and I had the pulse ox on my finger, my pulse was still in the high 80s or 90s, which uh, kind of made a little sense given the trauma, even though my resting heart rate would be about 60. And, but then my pulse ox dropped into the 80s, and so I just was feeling kind of crappy and hanging out for a day or so, and it, my appetite pretty much dropped pretty low. And, and so they knew my red blood cell count was really low. And so I had been given a lot of liters of fluids, and so that probably diluted the system a little bit because I, I didn't actually lose probably too much blood into my femur or into my quadricep, and, but I probably lost over half a liter during the surgery. The surgeon talked about some clever kind of mathematical system they have for guessing the number of soaked compresses and the size of the puddles to estimate how much blood was lost. So that was a fun little time in the hospital, and they estimated about a half liter, and so I'd been given a unit, which is about a third of a liter, but I was just still doing terrible and the PA came in and thought, you know, there's something just not going right here. And so he thought that, you know, maybe you've got something else going on. And so we went downstairs and it turned out I had a big blood clot in my leg and we did a big CT scan of my chest with some iodine that they run through your system. And 
It turned out I had a big blood clot about the size of a marble in my upper right chest. Whoa. Luckily, I was already on blood thinners. I know that I, you definitely could die from that, but I didn't have any pain. So interesting, my wilderness medicine didn't, my ENT training didn't answer that for me because I think of a pulmonary embolism as having point-specific pain, but mine was such that it wasn't irritating um, this particular layer of tissue above my lung, and so it didn't generate a painful stimuli. And so I didn't, you know, we didn't feel that. And so it didn't set off any alarms at the hospital until we realized I had this. And so it ended up I had a, a blood clot in my leg. I've got a blood clot in my lung. I'm taking, um, I'll be on blood thinners for about three months for that. And so they're going to kind of heal themselves. I've got my right elbow, even though they sewed it up and apparently you can see down to about my tendon. So I got a couple layers of stitches. My left, my right elbow is still pretty painful. And every time I bump it, which is too often, it's definitely really painful. And so using my crutches can sometimes be a little painful on it. So there's definitely some trauma there. Apparently I didn't break my arm, but it definitely has not healed over these six weeks. My right, my left hand is a little sore if I have my hand on the table. And I feel like the biggest worry was this mental scarring. I definitely remember laying in the bed and I could, I, my legs would tense up when I would kind of see myself sliding in the avalanche. And I'd kind of, I don't know if wake up, but I'd open my eyes and be in the midst of that a couple for a little for a day or two in the hospital or a couple of days or I had that sensation, but I feel like I got over that at some point. I just said, you know, I'm gonna want to ski again and I'm not gonna let this hold me back. And so I left on Christmas Day. Um, I slowly, I guess I took the wheelchair out and barely hobbled my way into the house and onto the bed and Luckily, you know, some amazing group of friends of mine started bringing over food so we didn't have to do much cooking. I feel like as time has gone on, I've kind of at least convinced myself that I'm going to get over this. And yeah, obviously I have to have learned some lessons for sure that I need to be more assertive of, I think in the beginning, right, when we were going up the valley and I wouldn't have skied that slope, I should have just, why I didn't say, yeah, that's a great line, but I'm not, you know, not for, not till May. Well, I want to ski that thing. And so I need to have learned that lesson, and I think I wasn't assertive enough, what my, or if my spidey senses were tingling enough, they didn't tingle loud enough to say, yeah, let's stop and let's just not ski this, and that was the mistake I made, and that's the thing I'm going to have to be more aware of in the future, is just thinking through, and I think just being more present when I'm skiing and saying, what am I willing to do or not on a day, and if I'm willing to ski certain slopes, then I should be more aware of what those slopes look like on the way up, and hopefully this experience here, talking through this podcast help some other folks avoid making the mistakes I made of not being intentional enough with their decision-making process to make the right choice in that circumstance. And I think there's something to be said. You show up, Mike, with a lot of experience, you know, a couple of decades worth of backcountry skiing, 22 years of the Hour Brown School, and how many years teaching wilderness medicine? Uh, 18. That's impressive. And it just goes to show that, you know, anything can happen to anybody at any time. So how can we minimize these in the future? And I think that you have some really powerful takeaways for the listeners. Yeah, thanks so much. A few other things that I think about with this is that, yeah, I've started a few little, few slides in the past. Of, and I think, gosh, are those days where I might have skied that and that was breaking my rule. And so I have to really assess how, how good a job I've done in the past and have I really been living up to my, the expectations I had kind of set for my backcountry skiing, getting powder fever or whatever in the past? And so I have to really reflect on my decision-making from the past and, and then ask myself, what decisions can I make in the future to try to avoid 
getting in, getting in an avalanche and having this scenario happen again. Because I could certainly imagine my mother saying something of, you let this happen again? And, you know, in her slightly sarcastic voice and thinking, well, you know, she's got me busted there for sure. And so, yeah, accidents will happen. But it's really made me reflect on that idea and think, wow, am I really going to be okay getting in a couple more of these or even one more big avalanche like this and thinking, gosh, would I really want to go skiing with a guy like myself if I've gotten in multiple of these accidents? And so it's, it really means I need to be more intentional about my backcountry skiing and choose my descents wisely, I guess, and how I'm going to be better at skiing in the in the future and, and be the skier I want to be, but still keep skiing good lines and still keep skiing in the backcountry and my wife and I having a good time in the backcountry and yeah, keeping that up for many more decades. Thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor. And thank you to the Colorado Hourbound School and Sudo for being contributing sponsors. The Colorado Hourbound School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years. They offer wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range in 8 to 81 days in length for ages 12 plus and include backpacking, mountaineering, canyoneering, rafting, and rock climbing. Visit www.cobs.org to plan your next adventure. When you have your mind set on a certain goal or adventure, you want to make sure your watch can also go the distance. With up to 120 hours of continuous exercise tracking, the Sunto 9 is built to last just like you. It is also tested tough through hundreds of hours of military-grade testing and built with durability in mind. Join the American Alpine Club today for an exclusive discount on the Sunto 9. Until next time, play hard and be smart.